Hi, everybody. I'm Jody Bhagat, President of the Americas at Personetics, and welcome to the Banking on Innovation podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Brendan Coughlin, a good friend and also head of consumer banking at Citizens Bank, a $192 billion asset bank with over 1,200 branches. Welcome to the podcast, Brendan. Hey, Jody. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. Brendan, you and I met back in 2009, I believe, when we were colleagues at Citizens Bank. And here we are again all these years later. I guess uh, you know, banking is growing, but still a small world in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, uh, the Citizens Alumni Tree is growing uh, pretty fast out in the industry. And uh, I've been at the bank um, you know, for 18, 18 years. Uh, so uh, uh, there's a pretty good network of folks that have come, come through and are now on a different role. So it's really good to be working with you in a different capacity uh, yeah. here. But yeah, the industry has changed in an amazing amount since 2009. I think, uh, you know, in, in industry, you get these moments of transformation every couple of decades where things really speed up. And, uh, and the game changes. And I think that's sort of the moment that we're in now across the industry, obviously driven by uh, the acceleration of digital behavior um, and consolidation of banking. Uh, there's a lot of different things putting pressure on um, uh, banks, particularly consumer banks, to really change the business model. So uh, it's really important that banks stay current and front-footed and uh, are able to see around the corner. Let's talk more about that, Brendan. You've had an illustrious 18-year career at Citizens. And in one company, you've seen so much change in the company, but also in the economy. Citizens Bank was part of RBS, and now it's independent. You've been through strong economies and weak economies. It had a regional bank focus. Now it has a national presence. You've been a buyer and a seller of branches and assets. What aspects of banking have changed over your tenure and what has endured? Yeah, uh, look, it's a great question. And both from, from a citizen's perspective, um, I've been here an awful long time, to your point. And uh, I, I was laughing the other day with some, some colleagues at Citizens and I said, um, you know, really the only thing that's the same at this bank from the bank I joined is the name on the outside of the door. And even that's not totally true because we've actually dropped the word bank and we're just calling ourselves citizens now. So really the bank is just completely different. And we went from a foreign owned subsidiary that was doing a lot of acquisitions, didn't um, integrate them well, as, as is the case when you're doing a lot of roll up acquisitions. And then the financial crisis hit and RBS uh, had a lot of challenges in the UK uh, for a lot of reasons uh, and needed to divest uh, a lot of their subsidiaries to uh, get capital back, in, including citizens. And at the time, uh, there wasn't a lot of M&A activity happening on the heels of uh, the financial crisis. So our really only route to kind of repatriate that capital back to uh, the parent was to IPO. And so we set the company on a, on a process to go public. So from an internally focused standpoint, uh, that was really the moment of transformation for this franchise in my view. And we did uh, go through a period of divestiture. We were underinvested in for a couple of years by RBS uh, because they, they were uh, uh, needed to really protect capital and, um, and improve the um, liquidity position of their organization. And so we needed to go through this period of, of great investment. And, and to do that, we divested our presence in Chicago, which we were underscaled uh, and made a lot of technology investment in the franchise. And we've really um, you know, had a dramatic uh, transformation in the organization. We've, we've um, nearly, nearly doubled the size of our assets over seven years. 
Uh, we've been growing two to three times faster than uh, peer banks. We've improved our capability on just about everything uh, across the bank and consumer and, and corporate banking. Uh, and then uh, we we finally felt like uh, at the end of um, of last year we were ready to start thinking about more meaningful acquisition. And we, so one of the one of the areas that we really had a hole in our franchise was in New York and New Jersey. And so uh, we called it the one-two punch, where we bought the HSBC U.S. franchise to fill in. Uh, Metro New York, and then planted a flag in Washington, D.C. and Southern Florida. And then the Investors franchise, which was a little bit more small business and commercially oriented, really gave us a strong presence in New Jersey and helped round out some of the boroughs in New York. So it really filled in our franchise quite nicely. And it was a great um, you know, first kind of one-two punch acquisition to move on from some bolt-on acquisitions we were doing in wealth and mortgage and commercial banking to traditional um, whole bank deals. Uh, so look, we're, we're on the front foot. And uh, we've we've transformed um, quite a bit, and I think we've moved from a sleepy old regional to one that is uh, more innovative and has a lot more momentum than most in the market. We feel very good about that, and it's needed. You know, your question about uh, what's going on in the externals, uh, there's a lot that's changed. I think um, the advent of digital behavior acceleration, particularly through COVID, brought in you know five to seven years of trends into a 12-month period, uh, and uh, Trends that were already well underway just accelerated very, very quickly. And, um, you know, in, in my point of view, it changes everything. Uh, because if you think about 10 years ago, the way a consumer picked a bank, it was largely driven by um, convenience. And convenience was largely defined by your physical network and your density. Uh, now, the way consumers pick banks is much more uh, mixed. And so uh, physical presence is important as is digital capabilities, but as is the quality of products and services you offer and the strength of your brand. And so uh, in the past, banks really didn't have to be all that differentiated because really all, at the end of the day, 90% of the decision-making came down to your physical convenience. Now you have to actually be differentiated. And it's hard for 5,000 banks in the US to all be uniquely differentiated. So it's really fundamentally changing retail banking in a very sizable way that I think will play out over the next two decades where you have to have products and services and scale that's differentiated. Marketing and tech need to grow fast, which means you need to have the scale. Uh, and I think it's putting the larger banks at a competitive advantage to do that, but you have to not be asleep at the wheel and really lean in hard to acknowledge these trends and reshape the bank uh, and not be complacent on what got you to this place will be the keys to success going forward. Um, you know, so that's a lot of what's changing. I think what's what's really the same is focus on customers uh, is still the winning formula, uh, giving strong advice, trying to be the customer's trusted financial partner through life's journey. Those things are sentiments that still carry the day. They just get delivered in a very different way now as, as banks modernize and move more digital. I know in some of those challenging times, it must have really really helped you grow as a leader. And, and you've personally navigated through many roles at, at Citizens, leadership roles in product management, you were the head of educational finance, and you were president of consumer lending and deposits, and now head of all consumer banking. And in each role, you delivered positive market growth, as you were saying. How have you had to reinvent yourself at each stage, uh, stage of your personal journey? Yeah, you know, I've done pretty much every job you can think of, and as you point out, in the consumer bank. Now, leading up to running the consumer bank, and uh, that has been one uh, area where I've always uh, focused is growth. Um, but all the jobs are different. You know, when I um, started my career as in more product management and finance and corporate strategy jobs, very different mindset in a staff function 
migrated in as a CMO of uh, all of our lending businesses, really had to uh, learn and develop how to think differently about customer experience and value creation, uh, which I think has stayed with me for the rest of my career as I've gone from staff functions now into line jobs and general manager jobs. Uh, when I started the student loan business for citizens, it was an entrepreneurial startup. So you're starting with a whiteboard and saying, okay, um, what problem are we trying to solve for the consumer? You got to match like a deep understanding of operations, a deep understanding of customer value creation, and a deep understanding of how to make money. And can those three things come together? And we were able to do that in a very disruptive way. But I would say that phase of my career was um, you know, entrepreneurial and startup oriented inside of a big bank. That led us to the creation of the Buy Now, Pay Later product and our relationship with Apple, which was in that same sort of mindset of disrupt the market, start with a whiteboard, really think about um, value creation for customers and uh, understand where there's soft spots, spots in the market where you can kind of uh, find that white space and uh, you know carve out a role. And we, we, in both cases, we've really disrupted not only financial services, but um, in the case of student loans, we've disrupted how the federal government thinks about uh, their uh, lending programs. We in and buy now pay later at the early uh, advent of the Apple relationship. We disrupted the telecom industry how they thought about distribution of their phones and the two-year contracts and how they work with um, you know Apple in particular. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And then I moved into more traditional roles, running the home equity business and the auto business that were more mature. Uh, and how do you innovate and uh, create growth? Uh, when you're not starting with a whiteboard, when you're actually got a well-run, large-scale business, and uh, that was a very different muscle for me to think through uh, of of how to how to do that. We created analytic intensity uh, to drive profitability up, to find new ways to compete in very different ways. And with auto, we only have indirect auto, so you know, really learning how to uh, think about customers from a wholesale perspective versus a consumer direct perspective. Uh, and, and in home equity, we had a great business and it was really about how to stimulate growth and uh, you know, modernize the business, digitize it, re-engineer a back-end operation to drive customer experience excellence on the front end and how all those things um, you know, kind of connect together. And then uh, my last stop uh, before uh, this role was in the deposit space where uh, it was um, you know, a little all of the above. We were growing the bank nationally from a deposit standpoint. So there's a little bit of innovation, entrepreneurship, kind of bringing it all together. How do you create um, sort of a new market to compete in? And then in the traditional bank, it was all about uh, transformation of our existing customer base, moving from uh, community bank thinking of thinner relationships, you know, focus on checking sales to driving primary banking relationships and transform the deposit book from um, profitability uh, from from a last high elasticity interest bearing accounts to low cost deposits driven by primacy engagement uh, customer experience design. So uh, you know, really in all my different roles, I've had to work different muscles, and uh, and I've I've tried to prethink that through my career to say how do I get all how do I build this muscle mass in very different ways so I can um, uh, ultimately migrate into a much bigger job where I need all of those different muscles to kind of be working together and and. I feel that today in my current role, uh, depending on the day. <laughs> <laughs> I know some days we feel good, some days not so good. Exactly. But you know, such such important takeaways. If I could just recap three of the points you made. Um, the first is around, it's not just left to the challenger banks that can be disruptive, right? Regional banks are in an excellent position to actually disrupt and focus on some aspect of the of the market that's underserved. The second thing was around how to drive innovation in mature businesses. And you talked about better applying analytics, 
improving the experience, digitization, um, bringing kind of re-engineering of processes. And the third is how to think about growth differently when you're in market versus out of market. And I, I know that you're bringing all that together now, but I think those are three really good points for, uh, for our audience to take away just in terms of how to, how to think about innovation differently in different contexts. Yeah, I, I agree. And maybe I'll pull the thread on your first one for a second on the, the concept of challenger banks. Uh, you know, look, I think, I think the fintech environment has really upped the game uh, for banks and the stakes as well. And it's pushing banks to be more innovative and think more customer centristic, which is a good thing. Uh, and there's all kinds of flavors of fintechs. There's fintechs that are, their business model is to plug into banks and support them and help accelerate their capabilities. And there's fintechs that are aimed to be disruptors. Uh, I think banks are exceptionally well positioned uh, to win. And I think in this tougher market uh, where we potentially are heading into a recession, um, you know, the tide's going out a little bit and you know, it's time to see what these, what these organizations have. And I, you know, I won't, I won't mention any, any names, but when you look at some of the fintechs that had a lot of um, glitz and glamour over the last five years, um, you know, their valuations of some of them that went public are getting crippled because I think, you know, in some cases it's clear that while they have a good technology and they have a good way to think about the customer experience, they haven't matched that up with the way to make money long-term and they, you know, valuations of these companies uh, are at the highest level since the dot-com bubble. Um, and so you kind of look at that with the raised eyebrow saying they're not profit taking, they're having some success disrupting, but they don't really have a clear path to turn that into profit. You either have to figure that out as you get mature, or you got to recognize there's a structural challenge within the business model. And I think where banks really have an advantage is deep liquidity, capital strength, that changes the economics a lot. What they didn't have was that speed to develop and the technology orientation. And in some cases, that obsession around customer experience. So if banks can do that well, I think they're exceptionally well. And that's what we're trying to do at Citizens is really be a fintech within the, the structure of um, a mature, well-run, well-capitalized bank. It's easier said than done, but I think this is that moment in the market where it, the, the banks are going to separate from each other and say, which ones can lean into that hybrid mindset and which ones retrench back to the traditional mindset. And I think that will be what separates the winners from the losers. You know, it's such a good point. We, we actually believe, firmly believe that this period of transition, there will be greater separation between leaders and laggards. And that's not just from a, you know, customer experience and acquisition standpoint, but also from a performance ROA and ROE standpoint. So let, let's talk more about this, uh, the stress that households are feeling. They're clearly under increasing stress and uncertainty. And our consumer research we just conducted last month, it shows that 63% of consumers haven't heard from their bank in the past three months about how to address the inflation crisis. So where do you feel banks are meeting the expectations of this moment? And where do you think they're falling short? Yeah, I, I think um, uh, on the health of the US consumer, I sort of feel like it's the calm before the storm. And um, it's unclear how big the storm is going to be. Is it going to be a little uh, rain patch or is it going to be, um, you know, a hurricane? Uh, but when I look at the health of the consumer, there's attitudinal stress, right? Consumer confidence is going down. But the more substantive health measures are very strong. So the consumers have 25% uh, more deposits than they did before COVID, um, especially prime plus 
consumers have the lowest debt leverage on credit card that they've had in a couple of decades. So more money, less debt. Um, the charge-off rates are at 50% or lower levels than pre-COVID. So it has not translated to any stress um, in delinquency. And then spending is up 20% from pre-COVID. So we're spending money, but they still have deposits. They don't have a debt burden that's, um, that's building up yet. And, and credit is in pristine condition. That's sort of, and oh, by the way, they have the most equity in their homes in any time in the history of the United States. So that's a recipe for real strength with the economy being led by the health of the consumer. Obviously, with rates going up, the Fed's trying to you know, taper down inflation, and that's going to put um, some stress points on the economy, including on the U.S. consumer. But we're not yet seeing it. But attitudinally, we feel it, and they feel it. Yeah. Uh, and you, you just read the, the headline. I think banks historically have done a very poor job of being there minute by minute for their customers. And um, banks need to be less transactional and more advisory based. And it, advice it can come in many shapes and sizes from the traditional human interaction and sitting down and having things like we provide a citizen's financial checkup to our wealth business and financial planning. But day-to-day -day insights, my, my view on the digital acceleration is that it's not just about technology and displacement of brick and mortar. It's about financial confidence and empowerment for customers. And so, you know, 20 years ago, people are taking notes in their checkbook and every weekend they're writing down the checks they made and you weren't very close to your money because it was too hard to be close to your money. Yeah. You're, you're tallying it up in the weekend and you kind of know what came in, what came out. Now, in the palm of your hand, you can have day-to-day -day data and insights. And that's helpful. But when you think about that from a digital perspective, what gets me excited about it is that it's all about financial confidence building and empowerment. So you don't need to be walking through your day uh, worried that you don't have control of your money. All you have to do is look if you want. And the banks that are doing it well aren't just waiting for customers to look. They're actually nudging them along the way. And that's where you know the partnership between citizens and um, your organization has really uh, helped us uh, scale some of that to say, okay, how do we um, do a better job of taking this treasure trove of information and getting customers that information, but they don't have time in the day to sit there and dig through tons of transactional information. You've got to distill it down in a really, really simple way <laughs> to help customers understand where they are and make it be a helpful nugget of, of, of advice. So, so, you know, people sometimes think about financial advice, think about the, the big ticket transactions, planning for retirement, and that's true. But so is true that financial confidence and empowerment is driven by the fact that you have your gym bill that's coming up on a Friday, but you don't have enough money in it. So how do you make sure you, 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 you know, um, can understand that early so you can put money in it so you avoid an overdraft fee? That's a very transactional piece of advice, but it's a very important piece. Yeah. In fact, it, it, for, for the mass market of customers, it does come down to kind of the kitchen table economics, just better managing your day-to-day -day banking and showing that the bank is, is there for you and looking out for you, right? You know, you've been a real champion of the customer experience, something I've always admired about you, Brendan. And I'm sure this kind of relentless focus around the experience has contributed to much of your success. But customer expectations of banks are continuing to rise. And one of the ways the industry is responding is through, as you mentioned, through delivering more personalized experiences and advice. What do you think is the opportunity for banks that get this right? And how is citizens responding? I think that's where all the action is. I mean, customers are demanding to be understood and treated as an individual, not a cohort. And 
banks really need to lean into that and understand that trend. As much data and information as banks have, uh, as an industry, we've done a very poor job of understanding that and distilling it down to helpfulness for our customers. And, um, and that's a giant opportunity. And I really think that, um, you know, back to the point around disruption in the industry, uh, banks never really had to be great at this and they didn't actually need to differentiate on experience or value prop creation, whether it's product service or experience because so much of consumer decision-making was driven by physical convenience and density. And so that covered up for a lot of sins of banks not being front-footed around the real customer experience. When, as that changes, and it is, and by the way, I'm a big believer that the role of brick and mortar is here to stay. It will change, but the need for brick and mortar is there, but it's not the be all and end all anymore. And so banks that don't get this trend, um, you know, proceed at your own peril you have to actually think about the value you're creating. And so, you know, both from the standpoint, are your products and services distinctive and competitive? And then from an experience standpoint, how do you do the best job to your point around having that one-to-one uh, insight for that consumer that's helpful, whether it's a simple transactional insight, like, you know, you're spending money on Hulu and Netflix and you really want to do that, or whether it's a more life event, uh, like I see, I see you preparing your savings and I know that you have a kid, are you getting ready for school? Let's sit down and talk. Um, the banks that do that proactively, instead of waiting for somebody to walk in through the physical network doors and ask a question are going to win. And I think that the stakes are pretty high and it's just that simple. So uh, you've got to build the infrastructure around data. You've got to build the infrastructure, how to translate that data into real insights and advice. And you have to build the humans in the branches and in other parts that when it is a physical interaction, it's not a bunch of folks that are just trained on transactional banking that they can actually pick the ball up from digital and analytics and now actually add that value from an advisory standpoint when um, your customer wants to see the whites of somebody's eyes and how all that comes together in a connected way is critical. You don't wanna have simple advice and transactional things going out in your mobile phone and then they walk into the branch and they have no idea about those same insights and they're starting over. So the connected experience is also something that customers are really demanding. You know, listening to you, it can feel a little intimidating, all the challenges you just laid out, but also somewhat exhilarating because banks are doing such meaningful and impactful work here in terms of the outcome is it can be really beneficial for the, the customer franchise and individual customers' well-being. So that, that creates a, a really exciting um, you know, target. In, in a moment like this where um, you know, a lot is changing and it's changing at the fastest clip really we've ever seen, it can be overwhelming. And um, you know, I think banks have to do a good job of understanding where they need to go over the next five years, but don't get overwhelmed or crippled by the intensity yeah. or the broad sweeping amount of change that needs to happen. You gotta execute well, pick and choose your spots. Um, you know, I think more than ever banks don't need to be all things to all people. Uh, when you think about having a differentiated value proposition and, and, and you actually have to be differentiated versus just saying you're differentiated, it's hard to be differentiated at everything. So, right. you know, picking and choosing <laughs> your spots, the type of customers that you inherently serve well and leaning in hard, you know, customers want different things. Young professionals want different things than pre-retirees, than retirees, than uh, various different segments of affluency. Most banks, maybe putting aside the, the large money center banks, need to, need to find that focus, I think. And that will um, take the temperature down a little bit about how overwhelming this can be. Like, just how do you build a, biz, a, a great business? This yeah. is sort of um, 
uh, management 101. Be focused on the customer you're trying to serve. Where's the value you're going to create? How do you do that better than others? Yeah, it's so great how you brought, you know, your learnings from just the past into, you know, into the moment of today and how you're leading around that. You know, what so I'm curious as to how these the personalized experiences you talked about, how it may vary for different kinds of customer segments. I mean, it's it's personalized in by definition, but how does it vary when you're talking about customers that are living at the margin versus mass market versus affluent, mass affluent? And so on. I think mo- so. In a couple ways, I think most folks start with where you just did. Is that in that there's there's a differentiated um, uh, type of advice that is needed based on your affluency, and that is true. Um, but it's not as true as people think on some dimensions. And so there's also an attitudinal lens here that transcends affluency. So what we find, I'll hit that first, and then and then hit the you know, what's different depending on your level of affluency. Uh, when you think about financial empowerment and confidence, uh, you'd be shocked at how many folks that have an enormous amount of money with the bank would tell us that they feel intimidated by managing their money and financial services at a very basic level. And so a lot of capabilities um, that um, that we put in that seem basic or, or you, if you're, if you're kind of on the industry side versus the customer side, you think it's more oriented around a mass market customer, helping to manage your money, helping to avoid overdraft, helping to give alerts when cash is low, helping to give basic spending and savings tips. Uh, we find that those things are extraordinarily relevant, even up to our high net worth segment. Uh, now that's not true across, you know, every customer, but I would tell you, even yeah. in the mass market, there are some customers that just don't feel like they need it because they're just attitudinally managing their money in a very intense way. They don't have a lot of money, but they're attitudinally managing it very tight. So it's not as helpful, but for folks that really need that help and advice, uh, it, it a bit transcends the affluency segment. So I think it's an important point not to be missed uh, for industry that um, don't, don't just think of these things as affluent segment experiences and don't underestimate the uh, proportion of folks that are affluent that actually still need some of the very basics and find a lot of value in it. So, uh, but then there are very different um, types of life event advice that happens depending on your, your stage of affluency. So, um, you know, if you're a student, you're thinking about, you know, moving out of your mom and dad's house and uh, what does it take to start to rent on your own? And uh, I got my first job. How much should I save? What should I put my 401k um, you know, should I go on all these vacations? Uh, am I living my life from an experiential standpoint? Am I, uh, when do I buy my first home? Am I delaying my wedding? How do I pay off my student loan debt and get the albatross off my neck so I can feel unleashed in my financial confidence in life? So there's a whole suite of things as you're starting out in life that become important. And then as you get up to uh, other, other life stages, and sometimes it's age-driven, sometimes it's affluency-driven, how do, you, how do you start to think about getting somebody into their first home, starting to save for retirement, uh, how to, you know, whether to tap your equity to pay for your kid's school or whether to take a student loan or whether to pay in cash. And is, how's that going to impact when you want to retire uh, down the road uh, is important uh, for folks to really think through and manage your money. Uh, what's your risk profile for wealth management? Do you want to, um, you know, high risk, high return or slow and steady wins the race? And, and then as you get to pre-retirement, just are you ready or do you have enough of your nest egg built up? Are you confident to you know, start to think about retirement and how to manage your money in retirement? So there's very different uh, types of uh, bigger ticket advice that's needed depending on your age and affluency. 
And it's important that banks understand that. And the more proactive banks can be around seeing those trends and helping their customers versus waiting for them to pick up the phone, the better position they'll be to earn that trust and confidence and ultimately deepen the relationship. Well, Brendan, I hope your kids listen to you because you have a lot of valuable things to say that can be helpful to them. <laughs> my kid, my, I've got four boys and the oldest is nine and the youngest is three. So the extent they're listening to me is, uh, you know, <laughs> could I have 10 bucks to go down to the store to get some candy? So maybe at some point yeah. uh, they'll, they'll listen to other things. But <laughs> yeah, different kinds of challenges. You know, I, I do want to just come back to what you said, though, because it's so important that we have 120 million end consumers on our platform. So we see a lot of the data in terms of who's responding to what kinds of insights. And what you said really rings true, which is that there's an attitudinal aspect where people just appreciate when you're making them aware of things they should be aware of or take action when necessary. And it's, it's irrelevant about how affluent they are. They still like it when you help them avert fees or when you tell them that, this is the first time you're shopping at a uh, at a new online merchant. So just make sure it's uh it's it's not fraud, you know. So whether you're kind of living at the margin or affluent, you you like it when your your primary bank is looking out for you and trying to improve your you know the way you manage your banking. Hundred percent. And you know what we what we also find is that even you know like a low balance alert, um, a lot of times customers know they're running on empty, um, and and it's not a shock to them to get a low balance alert. Um, and so even if it's not information that they didn't know, uh, it elicits uh, an emotion around the bank that it's a bank that has your back and is going to be helpful to you. So it's got a lot of brand value, too, if you get this right, uh, that you're really uh, attempting to be a trusted partner for them. And, um, you know, what the value you're adding here is not an attempt to have them do more business with you. It's just helping them live their life in a better way. So. Um, anyway, there's, we see that a lot too. And that also transcends um, your level of affluency or age. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. You, you mentioned the, uh, the role of the banker as well. So what are some of your learnings on the role of digital and the banker, the assisted channel and striving to deliver more personalized experiences and, and how is this influencing your strategy moving forward? You know, early stage of, you know, digital becoming a sort of a, a primary thing that banks are talking about. I think, uh, there's a lot of anxiety in your legacy physical channels around you're displacing us. That's going to be less jobs, less branches. If they're digitally engaged, um, they're never going to come back into the branch. I'm not going to be able to get as many sales. And I think that's just the wrong way to look at the world. And I think folks are starting to realize that, that when this is really about an integrated banking experience and uh, back to digital being a financial empowerment tool versus a technology channel. When you feel like you are more financially competent and empowered and you feel like the bank has your back and is giving you these type of insights and it's not just a transactional app, it's a really helpful advisory-based app, they're going to do more with you. And the likelihood that they're going to go do a mortgage or a home equity or a student loan or start retirement without talking to a human is pretty low. And so now they might do some of it digitally, but at some point, most consumers want to talk to somebody about that. And so the bankers that really get this understand that digital is not a threat. It's an enablement of deepening and building trust with that relationship and how it all comes together. Also, the more we can get transactional banking, sort of the non-value add banking on the phone, 
um, frees up more time for our bankers to do more value add things. And so if there are less people waiting at the teller line to do address changes and basic banking because they're doing it on their couch from their phone, well, that now frees up the human interaction to be much more advisory and spend time reaching out to your clients that might have some alerts in your internal systems to um, where there's a trigger that maybe they need a, uh, uh, you know, a financial advisory conversation or they need deepening or it looks like they, um, they uh, are looking at a first home and maybe we should talk to them about that. So it's actually really helpful, uh, but what needs to happen in, and this will happen over time, as transactions come out of the branches and more and more customers get digitally engaged and more and more banks build up the capability to do more of that basic transactional banking on your phone, uh, not only the mix of types of things that come into your physical presence will go more advisory-based and more complex, it's going to raise the bar on the quality of staff. And mm-hmm. so uh, that doesn't mean you have to replace your staff, but banks need to be thinking about uh, how to bring your people along for that journey. How do you upskill them? So it's not just about widget processing. It's you know, 80 per, right now it might be 60% widget processing, 40% service and sales. At some point in the next few years, it's going to be 80, 85% service and sales and advice. And we have to prepare the folks that are in our human channels to make that pivot and be capable and confident to have those more complex, more advisory discussions. It's a different skill set to cash a check versus have a discussion about a retirement. So that's a big, that's a big people transition that's got to be underway in financial services. Yeah. You know, it's interesting with, uh, there, there are some capabilities in banking that are very mature, but this, this notion that you talked about, which we firmly believe in as well, this connected channels notion, it's one that we believe that we're still in the very early stages and there's innovation happening, but there's much more innovation to come. And as you said, to be able to, to deliver on that promise, it's a challenge, but also a, a terrific opportunity. So I think it's a very exciting time. It's hugely exciting. It, it, it's, it's complex. It really is complex. Yeah. And you have to have the mindset around it's got to be integrated together and have this omni-channel approach for one. If you don't have that, I think you're dead in the water. But if, if you at least have the mindset, it's still really complex. And your banks were built up um, it, with disparate technologies, legacy mainframe systems, Tech architecture was built from the GL out versus the customer experience out. And so it's one thing to have the mindset of a connected experience. It's the other thing to actually deliver it. And that's what banks really have to think through is how to modernize your tech stack. So if you're getting an alert on your phone, your retail banker knows that that alert happened too, and they can be helpful when you're walking into the teller line or the branch. And most banks have those on very different platforms today. So it's it's complicated. So, but you have to, you have to really think that through. So that connected experience for the customers felt uh, in every interaction that they have with the bank. Yeah. And, and arguably the, the banker, as you said, suggested, instead of just having a marketing lead lists that they may have had in the past, now you're, you're armed with all of this intelligence. So you can actually be much more informed with your outreach, feel like you're actually delivering more personalized advice. Um, so hard to do, but but very exciting in terms of the the possibility for the bank overall, for the digital channel and for the banker channel. I think if you're in retail banking right now um, and and you can't get up and excited for this moment, you know, check your pulse uh, because (laughs) it's uh, it's an exciting time and um, and, you know, change can be anxiety filled, especially if you've been in the industry for a long time. But uh, this is really exciting. And your earlier point, I think in these moments, leaderboards change pretty fast and, Banks that are forward-leaning and can sort this out quicker 
um, you know, it's hard to change on the leaderboard in times of status quo, in yeah. times of dramatic change. Uh, the, the leapfrog concept is very much there and available. And so uh, uh, it, it is very exciting. It's, it's, it will be fast paced and, um, and, and overwhelming and very complex, but also very, very exciting. Well, I know, but with your experiences, you you're very well placed, and I'm uh, I'm excited to see what's ahead for you. So let me let me uh, end with the kind of provocative question I like to ask our our guests: What will customers demand from banks and credit unions in the next three years that the industry may not be well prepared for right now? I think uh, what they will we've hit on a bunch of it. I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to um, value creation for them. Uh, versus a transactional bank, like don't don't just be background noise for your uh, for your customer, where they just view you all as the same. What what do you stand for, and why are you different from the bank down the street? And I think that can take multiple forms, whether it's in product and service differentiation, whether that's in advisory different differentiation, and in particular to your point around one to one personalized advice, like really get to know me, whether that's on the human level or using um, you know, technology and digital tools and analytics to um, get to know them in a very different way, the combination of those will be very powerful. And I think customers will start to demand that. If you, at the end of the day, if you can't deliver that trusted advisory experience through human interactions and digital experiences, and you haven't created differentiation in your products and services, and you're relying on um, you know, quote unquote, quality of people in my branches and where they're located, and you still sort of look just like you did a couple of years ago and just like a lot of other banks, I think you're going to have trouble. You, you look at, um, you look at uh, the top 25 banks in the US and they're gaining scale quickly because they're more likely to do this. And the, and the, the, the smaller banks haven't innovated as fast on some of these measures. And while there's some really successful ones on the whole as a cohort, they're losing a lot of share. In deposits and consumer, um, you know, households. So it's really, really important that um, I think customers are already saying they demand it, uh, and and leaning in hard and getting that experience at scale is going to be is going to be um, very critical for the success of the organization. Well, Brendan, I want to thank you for giving us all of this great wisdom and insights. You know, what I really appreciate is the way that you've been able to bring together your experience from multiple aspects of the industry. Your the the fact that you've participated in the ups and downs and you've got some of the scars from the from the tough times, you bring a real fact basis to your decision making and your your hypotheses. And I think the most clear of all is your your customer centricity, the way that you're really driven by the customer experience and the desire to improve it. And I think that set of collective kind of experiences and 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 assets that you bring. You just have, uh, you know, delivered great insights for the audience. So thank you. Oh, thanks, Jody. It's very nice of you to say. And uh, we can't we can't do it alone. I can't do it without great partners like like you all and and others in the industry to help us uh, accelerate some of the things we're trying to do in in a scaled way. So uh, feeling is mutual. You guys are are really helping the industry uh, evolve uh, and lean into some of these really important topics to reposition the banking system to deliver better for our customers. Thank you for joining another episode of Banking on Innovation. Make sure you subscribe to get future podcast episodes or follow us on Twitter at Personetics or on Personetics.com. 